Okay, tonight we're going to do it on an overcoming life. I want you to think about your life for a minute. I want you to think about yourself. Are you an overcomer? I mean, really, would you say in your life you're an overcomer, that you overcome those things that come against you, where you get the victory? Yeah. Based on the fact wisdom is vindicated by the children, so there'll be proof there's an overcoming aspect to your life. That's what I want to ask you tonight. Let's look at the overcoming. There's one thing that stands out in the Bible. And, you know, you can go to a bar where people have never heard about Jesus. I mean, they've never, ever, you know, know any of the Bible stories. But you ask them, do you know who David and Goliath is? And they all know who he is. Isn't it amazing that some guy, what, you know, one, two, three, three thousand years ago, that he actually, (laughs) that he actually made such an impact that what he did on one day of his life is still told, that everyone, everyone, I don't care what culture they are, they basically have all heard of David and Goliath. And so it's an interesting story about overcoming. I was sitting at Latham Springs at a camp with Gatesville First Baptist. We took all the kids there. And y'all, all of a sudden, the Lord said, I'm going to show you about overcoming. And I just opened my Bible and I started writing. Look at that. And that was one of the first times it ever happened to me where it just literally, as fast as I could write, Bible studies came. And it started with the first verse on the page. And the Lord said, I'm going to show you the secrets of overcoming. So tonight, we're going to go into those secrets. And we're going to start with verse Okay, the first thing I want to say, there are two types of Christians. There's David's and there's Saul's. There's some that are covenant men. Both of those men had a covenant with God, but only one of the men was an overcomer. Both were covenant men. Are you a man that acts on your covenant? Also, I want to ask you something. Did David sustain his overcoming ability all through his life? I want you to think about the sustaining power of being an overcomer. Because you may have one defining moment in your life that you're like, that is an incredible moment. But can Elijah sustain overcoming from Mount Carmel? Can you keep on going and keep an overcomer's outlook on life of where actually you're, you're processing those scriptures in your life? Now, I think these are principles tonight. We're going to go into them. And I guess if I would say anything that this one chapter screams, this chapter screams that one man can make a difference. Isn't that interesting? If there's any chapter in your Bible that says one man can make a difference, this one shows that one man can make totally a difference. Okay, verse 20. The first thing I noticed in verse 20, and that's where my Bible starts at the top of the page, was that he was up early. And I think one of the secrets to overcoming life is getting up early in the morning. I remember the day that I started getting into a morning prayer time rather than just my nightly prayer times. And up early in the morning praying... Honestly, what you're doing is you're taking the worries and the cares of this world and you're giving them up to God. Do you see where he says it was up early and he put his stuff in the care of the baggage keeper? Well, I think that's what the Lord is, that we take our excess baggage and we hand it to the only one that can keep it. And we're up early in the morning time and we're before the Lord and we're giving our excess baggage over to him. That morning prayer time where you empty yourself. What I call it is you've got stomach knots. You have things that are like, man, you're nervous about, you're anxious, there's dread, and you pray till the dread's gone. And then then you'll be amazed how easily you'll walk through your day once you handle that baggage early in the morning. Then verse 20, look what he did. He was obedient. He took the supplies his dad had commanded him to take. Now, if you do a little research on it, it was a 12-mile journey to do what his dad told him to do. Obedience. He was following his dad's request. Parental obedience. You know, he needed to be 
exactly in the center of God's will for this day to happen in this life. And I've noticed that when I'm obedient, it causes good things to happen in my life. It lines my day up. You know, when you get into a little disobedient time and you just go through one of those side paths and everything goes wrong for a season. But obedience opens you up to the will of God. If you're supposed to be at Howard Payne, you need to be at Howard Payne. That is where the will of God is for your life. It's amazing how obedience sets you up for right things to take place in your life. Number three, let's look at the problem. Problems seem to propel us to the next level. You know, in verse 16, every day the men were out looking at the problem. It says that they were looking at the enemy for 40 days. I mean, they'd been going through this day after day after day, 40 days of this stuff. Verse 3, it says it was battle array. There was army against army. Each were on each side of the mountain. Now, the, the armies were up on the mountain, but it's interesting that David fought the battle in the valley. And a lot of times, you'll win your battle in a valley. That's where the battle will be fought, and that's where it'll be won. You know, usually it's not when Dick Clark and Ed McMahon's knocking on your door. It's easy to have faith in. <laughs> but it's in those valley times that when you press through and God comes through for you. You know, David's victory was won in the valley. Now, what, what's amazing about this, it's unarmed faith. And it triumphs against the world's mightiest and utmost might of power. I mean, this is why everyone likes this story. I mean, basically, it's what the church has done all along against the world, that we have triumphed over the, the world's might. It's the little guy overcoming the big guy. In verses 8 through 10, in verse 23, we have Goliath, and we're introduced to him. And he begins to repeat himself. For 40 days, he comes out, and he makes this cry, and he challenges. The problem keeps representing himself. I've noticed with the devil, he repeats himself. He says it over and over and over. Those fear thoughts keep on coming towards you. We all face Goliath, and they all taunt us. Now, the first thing you're going to have to ask yourself is, if we're in spiritual warfare, and this is to overcome our enemies, then what enemies do you have that you need to overcome? If you cannot identify who your enemies are or what your enemies are, this lesson won't do you any use if you're not understanding, this is where I need to apply this lesson. What are my glass in my life? I want you to name them. I would say it's that thing that mocks you. Like, you'll never turn out. You're a failure. Man, you've got all these student loans. You can never go on the mission field. And every time you start to do something for God, you get sick or something bad happens. It's that thing in your life that constantly mocks you. It's your shortcomings. It's the times you fail. It's the way you think that you're stupid. It's something that comes out every single day, and it mocks who you are. I was raised poor. If I don't have money, I'll never be able to accomplish anything. And that thing comes out, and it begins to mock you. And it starts telling you something other than what the Word of God says and what the will of God is. Now, interestingly enough about Goliath, he was not just your average bad guy. But he stood nine foot nine. And that's really big even in today's standards. I mean, if you think about it back then, men were hitting four foot five up to four foot, you know, five foot. I mean, if you look at the armor back in this period, the men were extremely short. So this nine foot nine monster, he's ugly, he's unbelievable, and he's abnormal. And he comes charging out. Wouldn't you say that describes most of your problems? I mean, they're ugly, they're unbelievable, and they're abnormal. And they come out. And he's wearing state-of-the-armor armor, you know. 
and, yeah, state-of-the-art armor. <laughs> I repeated myself like the devil. Okay, state-of-the-art armor, and he's impenetrable, kind of like the Titanic, right? <laughs> yeah, it can't be undone. And he carries, the Bible notes, a 17-pound sword. Y'all think of the bowling ball that you pick. You know what, that bowling alley 10-pounder, 15-pounder? This guy had a 17-pound sword that he pulled out. Right now, I want you to think, do you have anything in your life that's facing you that's ugly, abnormal, and unbelievable? I mean, that's what's happening, and he comes out and he taunts you. Now, if you realize that most of these Israeli soldiers were Calvinists, and they were standing around at this moment, and they knew God could, but they were waiting for God to do something. They weren't about to do anything. And, and I think it's kind of a mentality that we get that if God wants something done, he'll do it. And I call it the lightning bolt mentality. God, I'm perfectly willing, if you want to, hit, hit, the, hit that guy with the lightning bolt. He's yours. But there's no, nothing in you that understands that it's you that's supposed to have the Lord inside of you conquer that giant. Now, 10 years later, you know what's going to happen? You'll be slaves to the Philistines, and you'll be telling people, this is God's will. It's what he's intended. I've learned a lot through it. He's been teaching me something. <laughs> you know, we have to get a fantasy out of our life and realize that our nine-foot-nine problems were put there, and these are the steps that work against them. Laziness. And we just don't do anything about them, or we think someone else should do it, or we're hoping God will. But there are serious steps that you can put to work in your life to deal with these type of problems. Point four is, look what David did. He started making a ruckus. When you find out about the overcoming life, you'll stir everyone up and everyone will be mad at you. Look at these verses in verse 26, verse 27, verse 29, verse 30, and verse 31. It says that David kept going, why don't we do anything about him? Why don't we do it? And he goes and he irritates everybody in the camp. And I think it's interesting that when you find out you have an overcoming life, people do not want to hear about that. And it stirs them all up. After all, what can one man do? Look at this. Defeated people don't like to be disturbed. <laughs> Leave us asleep. We're dead. This is what God's promises are. Why are we in defeat? And David kept asking, why are we living like this? The soldiers' words were words of resignation. David's words were words of indignation. What are you called to do? That thing you're most angry about. That's what you're called to fix. It's that thing that stirs you up inside and you go, this ain't right. This ought not be. This is not according to God's will. And it's that stirring inside of you. Now, I want you to mark something very big in your Bible that I've made note of recently. I was thinking about this this past year. There is no indication in Scripture here that God told David to fight Goliath. You don't hear him hearing God to do it. You don't hear him asking God if he should do it. I think it's interesting that there are problems that face you that are absolutely ugly and unbelievable, and God's Word is certain enough in your life that you don't have to have a direct word from God to know this ought not be in my life. And I think sometimes we over-spiritualize it to give ourselves three more days of not having to go out. <laughs> we get very holy of looking for a scripture because we're looking for a way out. When honestly, the Spirit of the Lord stirred David up. And God was all over David at this moment when he went out there. 
the perspective on the problem. We talked about this in France, verse 11, the perspective. Verse 11 says that they were afraid and they were dismayed. Then verse 24 says they were afraid and they fled. <laughs> what was it? Panic and paralyzed. It does one, of, one or the other. Now look in verse 11. It points out very clearly that Saul was afraid. Basically, the guy was coming out challenging Saul to a duel. You remember the scripture where it says Saul was a head and shoulders above every other man? And the guy's saying, come on, send me out your biggest man. Well, there's two reasons Saul should have been the one. I mean, just the sheer strength of, of his size and his stature and the fact that he had the position with God of being king. He was the champion, but he didn't act upon his covenant. So I think it's interesting here that the challenge was made directly to Saul. And verse 11 says, Saul was afraid. Now, how did David do it? Everything in life, this is where we talked about it in France, is perspective. When you sit there and think, absolutely, I am a sawed-off teenager. <laughs> I'm a poor excuse for anything that should take on something like this. You know what someone once say, if your dreams are big enough for you to do them, they're probably not God. That what God calls you to do is so beyond your capabilities. It's all how you look at your problems. You know, one guy said it this way, he's so big, I, I cannot win. That's what everybody in Israel was telling themselves. David was like, he's so big, I cannot miss. Think about it, he had a much, <laughs> his forehead was a lot bigger. <laughs> you look at this, and what David was acting on was not merely youthful daring. Because in your youth, you're like, man, I'm zealous. I can do anything. Nor was it an underestimation of the nature of the danger. But it was true faith that David walked out in. Don't let anyone say, well, it's just because you're a youth. Make sure you're not ignoring the problem and just underestimating the danger. Oh, I don't need this. I'm going to tell you, when you walk out in faith, you understand the problem and you look it square in the face knowing that God is bigger than any problem. You know, I told this story about Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts says he sees a 600-foot Jesus. He gets up in chapel the next day and he tells us what had happened. They had said, what are you going to do about the city of faith? What are you going to do about the closing? What are you going to do about all this? And he said, I saw the Lord, and he said he put his arms around the city of faith. So the news media measured the city of faith and said, oh, he said he saw a 600-foot Jesus. They distorted his words. He said the Lord came to him. He was so mad at the papers. He was like, this is not what I said. And the Lord said, Oral, you, the news media is right. You were wrong. And he was like, Lord, what do you mean? He goes, oh, I'm so much bigger. <laughs> Perspective. <laughs> And I thought what it was interesting that the way the Lord shames us is we're seeing him much too small than what he really is. Your perspective on how you look at things. The Israeli soldiers compared themselves to Goliath, and they said, I'm too small. But David compared Goliath to God, and he said, God is much bigger. And any time I get into fear, it's because I've started comparing myself and my abilities to my problem rather than comparing those problems to God. Define. Verse 26, 45, and 47. Every single battle you face has the same objective. And David emphasized it. Notice what he says in 26, 45, and 47. He said, Goliath is defying God. It's not that you're fighting the devil and the devil's fighting you. What's happening is it's a fight between the devil and God. <laughs> 
And what Goliath was doing was defying God himself. I think in verse 26 that David defined this issue for what it was. It was a disgrace issue. He said, you know what? Let's take away the reproach of Israel. Did you know by them not fighting it was reproach? When Christians do nothing about something, it brings a reproach on you if you're a non-overcoming Christian. I wonder what God's going to say to non-overcoming churches. Thousands of years of non-overcoming churches. And I think this is interesting. David is the first to describe this battle or this confrontation in theological terms. I think it's interesting here where he calls the battle as a reproach to Israel. He sees that he's defying God. And he sees the battle in an overall spiritual sense than rather just a problem they have of they're all going to get killed and become slaves. Hopefully one or the other. <laughs> or not both, I meant. <laughs> I bet they're... Okay. All right. The sixth thing is, how did David know that he could kill Goliath? This anywhere in the text? First he describes it as a theological battle. How did David know for sure that he could kill him? I mean, we all reach for one thing because he told Saul that. But I think there's a clue that you need to circle in your Bible in verse 26. He very clearly says, who is this UP? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the ranks of God? Uncircumcised Philistine. It's a covenant issue here. I don't think David was just referring to this guy's physical body. I think he was just saying, this is a covenant issue. And I think he was making a point here going, this guy, this man is without a covenant. That's how I know I can win this battle. That's where David got the confidence to go into this battle knowing that he could win it because he was an uncircumcised Philistine. He had no, nothing to stand on in a battle against David. And I think this is what gave David the understanding that he could go into this battle and that he could win it. Circle uncircumcised Philistine in your Bible. A lot of times I'm fighting a battle in my life and I go, this is an uncircumcised Philistine that's coming against me. This thing has no covenant. There's nothing this thing can stand on. What does the word say? What is my covenant on this? Now let's do a trick question. If David was a covenant man and Goliath was a man without a covenant, what was Saul? <laughs> what were the soldiers? <laughs> okay, I'll let you answer that. Okay, the rewards. Notice David, he didn't shy away from the rewards. The Bible very clearly tells you in verse 25, these are the rewards to the overcomer. Now, overcoming has rewards. It says that they'll get riches, adoption, and freedom. And if you think about those things, it's the same rewards for a Christian. It's the same rewards for an overcoming life. You get riches, you get adoption, you get freedom. One man quipped, you're either seeing the prize or the size. David goes, what will be done for the guy who gets, gets this guy? Okay, it's a character assault. Now, notice this. I think if you'll break this down, because this happens a lot before a battle, you'll have three attacks, three character assaults. The first one, is that you will be usually attacked by someone close to you. This one takes place in verse 28. And his brother is just the most embarrassed by what his little kid brother's doing, running around. And so in front of all the guys, he goes, what are you doing? He goes, why don't you go take care of those few small sheep that you have? You know, in other words, you've got a very small career. What do you on earth do you think you can do? And so Eli 
looks at him and he says some of the worst stuff you can imagine to him. He goes, your heart is wicked, it's haughty, and it's arrogant, and you're always insolent. You know, and you're sitting there thinking, if my own brother says that about me, I'm sure they're going to believe it. I'm going to tell you the devil will always try to get someone close to you to hurt your feelings. I mean, someone that will slice you to bits. Just kind of like a mean streak comes out and it will hit you in your most vulnerable part. You know, I've about determined that before a battle, I call it my Elab slap. And I've got to get a good slap by Elab to realize, good. Oh, I'm going to win this battle. And in the spiritual realm, it's, it's like that. It'll wake you up. You know, usually what it is, is right before I go into the battle, someone will tell me, no, you can't do that. And it's like a good, hard slap. And I'm like, okay, now I know the Lord's with me. I mean, I've got my Elab slap. And it just kind of resets my computer in my mind if I'm I'm doubting what I'm supposed to do. Because the Lord speaks to you, and the devil immediately comes along with someone close to you, and he'll slap you right in the face. Now watch what David could have done. He could have taken the natural course in life and he could have run home and he goes, Daddy, Jesse, you'll never believe, Daddy, you'll never believe what Elab said about me. He embarrassed me in front of all those guys. I was just bringing food. I'm going to, I spit in his, and David could have totally, you know, he could have totally lost his battle. I mean, think about it. it. He would have never faced Goliath if he had taken that approach to go run home and tell on him. He took his Elab slap well. Usually, there's going to be an attack by someone who's not willing to fight to talk you out of it. The second attack was verse 33, and it came from Saul. Now, this one's totally different. The first one uh, hits you emotionally. The second one hits you in doubt and reasoning. He says, since his youth, and you are but a youth. That's what Saul says. You know, Saul only knew him as a harpist. And Saul was sitting there thinking, "Uh, I don't think I need to send a musician out to... (laughs) to fight this giant. (laughs) But you know, David's interesting. Uh, He says, don't have a heart attack over this. He he identified himself as a servant here. And I I think Saul did something here that's interesting. He showed his perspective on life, on a battle. Saul's perspective was, deliverance must be by military might. It must be by weapons and training. Do you see where his trust was? I think it revealed a lot about Saul and where he put his trust in a battle. See, your third attack was by Goliath himself. The problem itself will taunt you. Verse 42, 43, and 44, it's like a fear attack. Remember, he comes out and he goes, man, I plan on feeding you to the vultures. And they come out and it sounds like Saturday Night Wrestling. You know, it's that TV trash talk, you know. I'm going to do this to you and this and this. And, you know, he starts talking about mincemeat that he's going to make out of you. So you'll have all three attacks. You'll have an emotional attack. You'll have a reasoning attack. And then you'll have someone that just physically tells you what you're going to do to them. You know, David had three problems before it was over with. His brother, the king, and the whole Philistine army. You know, and and a lot of times you'll get hit and it'll be multiple attacks. I remember one time we were at the office. And one morning we had a financial attack. The one in charge of our project hated our guts. I looked down and we were standing in flood water because our building had flooded. Two workman comps were hounding me on the phone. I had one on hold and I was on the line with the other. Our account was empty. They demanded $1,000 instead of the 300 they agreed upon. And I'm like, wham, wham, wham. And you're just on hold with, I mean, you just, and you look down like, I'm standing in water. The building's flooded. You know, you just, you don't even know where, I mean, it's just ridiculous, the attacks that you go through. 
If you're of that persuasion that we spoke of earlier, immediately when you have a text, you think, oh, this isn't the will of God. You know, and they immediately go to that thing of thinking that take your Elab slap is what wakes you up. Jesus was tempted three times and he had three comebacks. What's the answers to these three attacks? How did David answer each one of them? The brothers attack. You're a nobody. Who, who left you for those th- few sheep? In other words, you're in neglect. Your heart is evil. Your heart is wicked. It's arrogant. Now, don't look down. How did David answer that attack? What did he say? Yeah, that's what he said. He answered it with a question. A wise person once said that when someone's extremely angry with you, the best thing you can do is ask a question. For some reason, that'll diffuse their anger. And in a heated argument, I think it's interesting that David asked, was it not just a question? I think it's interesting that he answered it with a question. You know, one thing I want you to make a mental note of, if you're an overcomer, most people will mistake your confidence as arrogance. Because it's really offensive that you would go do something that they have for 40 days ignored. (laughs) And this happened to David, that his confidence, and, and you know, if you look at it, it does sound like cocky. Who do you think you are? Do you think you have something special? Are you a better Christian than us? Do you think you have more power? I mean, do you see where they were going with this? And they mistook his confidence in the Lord. The king's attack. You're an inexperienced kid. Can I ask you something? Was what King Saul said to David true? Yes, it was true. Was this guy trained? Yes. Was David a kid? Yes. I want you to remember something with reasoning. Most reasoning attacks are true. I mean, if you're going to say, well, what Saul said isn't true, so therefore I don't have to listen to it, most of the time you'll have to agree what they told me is true. But at that point, you're going to have to look for a higher truth. You're going to have to have that law of God's word superseding. You know, where what they're giving you is reality. They're giving you facts. But truth, God's word supersedes facts. Was he a kid? Did he have no military background? Yes, yes. Don't try to sit there and think that, it, that the attack's not going to be realistic. Okay, what was David's answer to that one? It's a great answer. He, he goes, past testimony. He goes, I've killed the lion and I've killed the bear. He goes, it's the same principle. It'll work here. And I think it's interesting how he pulls that up. He argues from the past to the present. That's good faith. I've done it before. God's been with me. I know I can do this one. It was a good answer. I want you to think about this. I always, you know, we read that over here. I killed the lion. I killed the bear. And you think about him taking a slingshot and throwing it and sinking it in the lion. But read what he did. It didn't say he killed the lion. It said he grabbed it by the beard. (laughs) You know, when you're reaching for the beard, that is closest to what? (laughs) The mouth. mouth. And you've also got these little things called ten claws headed towards you. I think this is an amazing verse when you look at it. I think I'm a little more impressed with this than Goliath. At least Goliath was at a distance. But I mean, literally, can you imagine this kid getting up close enough to grab that thing by the beard so he can thump it on the head? I mean, those things, I mean, have you ever seen those things in a movie where they move and their muscle structure? I mean, have you ever gotten bitten by a cat and tried to hold it down? (laughs) I mean, multiply. And they can clamp you hard, and you're trying to hold him muscularly down. And this thing, multiply that by 100, and that thing is charging, and you're sitting there whopping it on the head as you have it grabbed by the beard. This is impressive. You know, I'm just like, I wish we had this on film. 
you know, I've been delivered from Paul. I've been delivered from Paul, and now I'm going to be delivered from a hand. <laughs> I mean, he's just switching entities here. That you know, the lion's claws did not uh, take me. I remember with Bill's tiger, Bill, and he would swim in the water like this. And sure enough, when its ears came down, that thing came out of the water, and literally was a like a movie, and wearing a white shirt and white shorts. And that thing had its paws extended as it came for. I ran. So as this thing came through his head, I mean, literally, it caught him by one claw, and it just laid open his shirt. And he never could get the mud out of it, but he didn't care. It was like, I was bit by a tiger, you know, or I was, you know, I was attacked by a tiger. But I mean, it was just, I guess he was playing. And so I think it's interesting here, thinking the kind of, kind of the, the power that this guy had now, a little bit of Holy Ghost cockiness here. <laughs> I've already done this before. If God helped me rescue a lamb from its mouth, would he fail while rescuing a nation? Isn't that a great statement? Man, if he takes care of a sheep, will he not take care of a whole nation? Verse 36, it can be done from my past experience, tells me that God will come through again like before. Saul's answer was, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> my mother and I have this as a joke between us. You know, one of us has to go into a nasty confrontation or something, and we're, I mean, literally scared. They'll go, I'll be praying for you. May God be with you. You know, it's just like, goodbye. I mean, Saul is such a weasel here. May the Lord be with you. Bye. Have fun. Wear my armor if you need to. I'll be praying. He gets so spiritual here. It's one of the most comical verses in this entire thing. It's funny that David starts speaking hope to a gloomy king. And really, it did charge up Saul's heart enough to bring God into it a little bit. The answer to the enemy's attack, or glass attack, he told him, you're a dead man. Verse 42, 43, and 44, I asked for a man and you gave me a boy. <laughs> he was pretty insulted. He goes, I'm a walking arsenal. I think it's interesting if you'll look, look back in, in verses 5 through 8. Notice how many times it says he was covered with brass, 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 brass. I think that's an interesting conception of, of what Goliath looked like. Five through eight. I'd never noticed how many times in the Bible it said he's covered with brass. I mean, he must have been a clanker. And he's walking out. He's covered in brass. He must have been some dude. And so he walks out. He says something interesting. He goes, I'm insulted. He goes, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? But you know, there was probably more truth to what he was saying than what he realized. It only took one stick to whip him. I mean, I think it's interesting here that there was a lot of truth in what he was saying. And he cursed him. And he said, I curse you by my gods. And he really, he put a curse on him. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but the state school, the first time a guy looked at me and he cursed me that I'd be killed that week. It does something funny to you. You don't feel any kind of warm empathy for the child or anything. It gives you kind of a funny feeling. You, you start thinking about your driving, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> your life. It, it gives you a funny feeling until you realize what took place. And this is where David changes. I'm going to tell you something here. Do not ignore this. If you're cursed, if someone puts a curse, do not ignore the curse. Answer it. 
And we're going to stop right there with David's answer because we'll come back to what he did. But the most important thing that you can realize is you don't ever ignore what the devil says. If he puts a fear thought through your mind, I have noticed a thousand times I'll have a subtle thought go through my head and I'll think that's scriptural power to ignore it. Jesus did not ignore his three temptations. He answered every single one of them. Ignoring them, you can almost write it down on your calendar, they'll take place. Answer them. I don't care. I always have a reckoning in July. I always have this go wrong. I always, when you hear that go through your mind, it takes you two seconds and you answer it with a scripture. Advice pitfalls in verse 39, wear my armor. You know, I think it's funny here. Those that won't fight are the ones always telling you how to fight. Oh, I've got a lot of ideas for you. How to do it, how it should be done. You know, I, I know. <laughs> it's funny. Most criticism comes from pastors. You know, we shouldn't get involved. You know, I really think you handled it wrong. Some Christians have not figured out that they're in a battle. You can have a covenant and you cannot act on it. There are very few giant killers on earth. There's a lot of spiritual advisors. Proven armor. The bears and the lions. You know, it's, it's interesting that he took five smooth stones. Stones are physical weapons operated by the hand. But David also used a spiritual weapon operated by the mouth. Did you see him with his mouth that he, he ran out there? This is how you can tell if you're fighting carnally or spiritually. Sometimes we know what our spiritual weapons are, but we just don't use them. We don't say, we've got the blood, just like the children of Israel put the blood over the household. The blood stands between me and the destroyer. Y'all, destroyer. operate those spiritual weapons. Those five smooth stones, that symbolized what David had planned on doing to him. You know, and I'm going to say something else. There was the choice of armor. But I think that the more simple we keep ourselves by simple methods and simple weapons, the better it works. For some reason, there's a lot. I was digging through my closets while I was late coming in here. I was looking for that sling because it's just a simple piece of gear. And literally with the Bible, it just seems like with me that the Lord just gives me simple ideas, you know, like pitchers and trumpets. Just something simple to make situations turn out. At this point, we'll see what he did. David answers. In verse 45, 46, 47 comes the battle cry of the overcomer. And David says back to him, he goes, Goliath says to him, I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air and to the dogs and to the beasts of the fields. And you're going to be eaten up. And David sits there in verse 45, 46, and 47. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. I will kill you and I will take your head off and your buddies I will feed to the birds and the beasts. Look at David, he is getting after it. So that everyone will know that there is a God. And then he says that clear verse here. For the battle is the Lord's, and it's not my battle. And that's what you've got to clearly get in there. I am not, I'm not in this, is not a personal battle. But the battle is the Lord's. The battle is won in the name of the Lord. You can rebuke storms, you can rebuke an attack, you can rebuke an illness. I mean, David knew the power of rebuking what was coming against him. David's confession, faith declaration. You can't just think it. It's got to come out of your mouth. He invokes the power of God. It's always that heart and mouth, heart and mouth coming out your mouth. What have you used the name of Jesus on? You know, I think it's interesting here. David was sure that God could conquer through him. There just seemed to be no doubt in David that God would use his body to conquer through I think that's an amazing amount of faith. Some people might call it presumption, but if there's such a thing, it's called presumptuous faith. All right, faith has action. 
Verse 40 and 49, it's interesting. The confidence of keeping the rocks in the pouch till the last minute. The confidence of waiting on tickets till it's ridiculous. <laughs> the confidence of not being too quick on the draw. And yeah, I'm telling you, that's an interesting. The confidence of walking around at night without a flashlight. <laughs> in cactus. The confidence of those rocks in that pouch. Y'all, I don't see anyone talk about that, but that's an amazing show of confidence here. Too many times we're running from the enemy telling him who we are in Christ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David's been saying his faith to his brother, to the king, to the enemy, and now he's putting his faith into action. Speaking faith becomes catching faith. There's a lot of big talkers around Christian circles, but they're only muscles in their mouth. And man, you see something here with David. You know, David anticipates victory. I mean, you just like the way this feels. Faith requires action. That tense moment when you're reaching in the bag and you're putting that stone in the sling. Whoa, that's a good feeling. <laughs> okay, look at this. Look at this, y'all. Look at the verbs on this. If you've ever looked at the way that this stuff is constructed, it's incredible. He ran. He put his hand. He took out. He swung, he struck, he prevailed, he struck down, he killed, he ran, he stood over, he grasped, he drew, he killed, and he cut off. That's a lot of good verbs. Oh my gosh, I love the way it's... It, it, they just connect him with ands. I mean, that guy was swift action. Glad they said, was, he, just, he said he came out, clank, clank, brass, brass. He has that little, you can't forget he had a man in front of him too. That's what's funny. So he comes stomping out. And it says, David, man, he charged. He ran quickly. He was excited. This was his big moment. And so the next thing is don't stop too soon. Y'all, this is so important. It's a big mistake to get a PV, partial victory. We did a whole Bible study on these things. He had killed Goliath when that thing sunk into his head. I want to ask you something. Do you think Goliath ever saw what killed him? Did he even see it coming? Oh, I'm dead, and I don't know why. You know, it just his, his head was crushed. You know, I mean, he was getting to meet his maker. I mean, it was an amazing display of entering Sheol, ready or not. Okay, verse 49 through 51. This is where you PV it. When he killed him, he didn't stop there. He chopped his head off. And a lot of times we're leaving wounded giants. We need to make sure that the problem has its head utterly chopped off. You know with a rattlesnake, you can step on a rattlesnake that's dead, and it'll still bite you because those fangs are full of poison. I mean, they still have some motor movement in there. He utterly destroyed him, and he made him headless. Too many times we stop at temporary relief. We just get him down. We don't get him dead. It's obvious he's dead when his head departs his body. No wounded giants. I love this in Jesus' ministry when the guy was, man, I see men as trees walking. PV it. Jesus goes, let's pray again. Let's not stop there. I mean, that's an improvement when you hadn't seen that you see men moving. But Jesus did not stop. Sometimes with healing, we're stopping too soon. Marriage. We won't ever divorce. We just live like this, but we won't be in love. We'll stay in a loveless marriage. It's a PV. Health. You know my cousin that fell off uh, the horse? And the first report was she'll die. I mean, everybody stood against that. Second report, she'll live, but she'll be a vegetable. You can stop there. Third report, she'll be all right, but she has brain damage. Fourth report, she'll be all right, but she's lost her hearing. She walked out in seven days with total hearing. I mean, PVs, how, how far are you going? Don't stop at temporary relief. 
In verse 48 through 51, six times they use the word Philistine. It's like this contemptible little word that he uses there, contemptuous, any kind of sarcastic repetition here. And so the Philistines, his head was cut off, the Philistine, the Philistines counted up six times there. At this point, he uses glass sword on him. He takes glass sword out and he cuts glass head off with his own sword. That's what I said the first time. Okay, your past becomes your testimony. The very thing the devil was threatening with, he turned it on him. And he took that 17-pound sword home as a souvenir. Can you imagine a little kid holding a 17-pound whop bowling ball? This is a good part. Verse 51. Okay, your faith speaks faith to others. You know what? With Goliath, remember they made him a deal. They go, if you kill our guy, we'll be your servants. Oh, those chickens, they ran. When they saw Goliath go down there, they're like, this is a bad omen. <laughs> Our God hadn't done very well. It says that they fled, and Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued. Did you know what? Your faith speaks faith to others. It's contagious. And people are looking for bold men, and then they'll follow them. The Philistine fled. When I see someone act bold, it makes me uh, want to be courageous. If someone's preaching good, or if someone's praying hard, or if someone's witnessing bold, it, it does something inside of me. It, it catches on. Faith is very contagious. Goliath was down. Dead Philistines lay everywhere. And they didn't wait to become slaves. They ran. And faith is contagious. And you heard all of Israel scream. And those scared little soldiers that had been hiding just took off running. And they slaughtered all day long. Man, it was a great day. Okay, verse 57. Last verse. I want you to picture this. David is standing there holding the head of Goliath. Can you imagine that head, nine foot nine size head, bearded, that bleeding head of a boastful giant, and he comes in and he's holding that thing by the hair. Oh my gosh, it weighed more than a bowling ball in his arm. David's flushed, and he gives a quiet answer. He's standing before the king, grasping the hand of the man who had made all of Israel quake. Ah, gosh, what a, what a sight. I mean, as he holds that thing, and he puts that, that sword up on his tent wall as a souvenir. Man, it was a great day in battle. We're going to conclude. There are a thousand reasons in your life to be a loser. You're going to have a, a lot of legitimate reasons for failure. They'll be nine foot nine. It makes sense. They will squash you. And I found by talking to people and counseling, everyone has had terrible things in their past that defeat them. Everyone has divorce, they have abuse, they have pain, they have something that's gone wrong. But the rewards in life only go to those who overcome, not to the barely get-alongers. We're preparing to be overcomers in every area of our life. Amen.